The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com. I like to listen. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 166th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. On today's episode, we are heading to Texas to a town called Granbury. We're going to be featuring the history and hauntings of the Granbury Opera House. On this episode, we also have the sixth installment in the third series of Tim Prassel's Spectral Edition. Before we get into that, we want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Sue. Hey, Sue. Tony. Hello, Tony. Preston. Hi, Preston. Tiffany. Hey, Tiffany. She spells her name T-Y-P-H. Very cool. Jennifer. Hey, Jennifer. Kelly. Hello, Kelly. Paula. Hi, Paula. Vicky with an I-E. Hello, Vicky with an I-E. Dens. Hello, Dens. And Carmen. Hi, Carmen. And we do want to thank Johnny for sending us the Thanksgiving e-card. We really enjoyed that. Yes, thank you very much, Johnny. All right, Denise, are you ready to head on in to Texas? I most certainly am. History Goes Bump is entirely listener supported. Become an executive producer for as little as $1 a month. Get listed on the website and invited to exclusive virtual meetups. For $5 a month, you get that and exclusive bonus content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. For $10 and above a month, you'll get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash historygoesbump or you can support us via PayPal. Click the support the show tab at historygoesbump.com for more information. Pull the covers up tight. That chill you feel isn't the air conditioning. History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to this moment in oddity. This moment in oddity was suggested by Anna Prado-Frias. 
There was a time in history when people had to worry about being buried alive. There was another real concern for those buried, and that was body snatching. For example, in the United Kingdom, medical students had a need to study human anatomy out of something more than books. Traditionally, the corpses of executed criminals would be used, but in the 19th century there were not many executions as punishment had become more lenient. Demand for bodies far outweighed the supply, and thus the thriving trade of body snatching took hold. Something needed to be done to ensure the safety of buried loved ones, and out of this demand arose the mort safe. The first mort safe was made around 1816. Mort safes came in a variety of designs, but they all were formed from iron rods and plates that surrounded the burial completely. The top was weighed down with more iron and stone. The security continued below the ground. After the grave was dug, the coffin was placed inside and an iron plate was placed on top that had holes along the side to receive the iron bars from the cage. This extra security was necessary because grave robbers had developed a practice of digging a hole and tunnel system that could be dug up to 20 feet away. It was impossible to tell that the grave had been disturbed as the coffin had been pulled out horizontally through the tunnel. Mort safes had another plus. They were reusable. Obviously, after several weeks of decomposing, a body was no longer useful. Then a mort safe could be unlocked or removed and placed on another burial. They could be expensive, so churches would rent them out. That sometimes didn't solve the problem of expense as some elders would levy heavier charges. Societies developed to buy the mort safes and members could use them at a minimal charge. The use of the mort safe ended when body snatching ended, after the Anatomy Act of 1832. The act allowed for unclaimed bodies or donated bodies to be used for science. There are not many mort safes still around today, but the ones that still are around serve as an odd reminder of body snatching. Creepy makes history more delicious. This Day in History On this day, November 28th, in 1893, women vote for the first time in the general election in New Zealand. Women received the right to vote in New Zealand after the governor, Lord Glasgow, signed the Electoral Act of 1893 into law. This law was the first of its kind in the entire world. New Zealand was the first country to give all adult women the right to vote. Voting day was only 10 weeks later, and despite there not being much time to get registered, 84% of adult females registered and 82% of them turned out. More women voted in that election than men. And even though there were no electoral rolls for the Maori seats, women cast 4,000 of the 11,269 Maori votes that year. Some people feared that women would be harassed when they went to the voting booths, but their fears were unfounded and the day passed as a very festive affair. According to a Christchurch newspaper, the streets resembled a gay garden party, and the pretty dresses of the ladies and the smiling faces lighted up the polling booths most wonderfully. The History Goes Bump Podcast.
This location was suggested to us by Beth Lang. Granbury, Texas is a place where some claim Texas history lives and never left. The Granbury Opera House is a beautiful restored building that has a history of entertainment that continues to our modern day. It is a physical example of the importance theater has had in America in general and Texas specifically. The building has housed a variety of businesses. One of the more famous characters to perform at the theater reputedly was John Wilkes Booth, and he may not have left the theater. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of the Granbury Opera House. The first building in the settlement that would become Granbury was a log cabin courthouse. The city's name for General Hiram B. Granbury. He moved to Waco in the 1850s, and during the Civil War, he recruited the Waco Guards. They moved into Kentucky, and the Texas Volunteer Regiment elected Granbury as major. On February 15, 1862, he was captured with his command at the Battle of Fort Donelson. He became a prisoner of war and shipped north to Johnson Island Prison at Lake Erie under General Grant's terms of surrender. In 1864, he would lead the Granbury Brigade at the Battle of Franklin. He lost his life there. Granbury is the county seat of Hood County, and it was this county where Davy Crockett's family received 640 acres in land grants after the Texas Revolution. A center square is the heart of the city, and many historic buildings are on that square, including the Granbury Opera House. As strange as it may sound, theater began in Texas inside the Mexican war camps that were built during the battle for Texas independence. Organized theater would arrive later in Houston, Texas in 1837. Over time, nearly every city in West Texas has had an opera house, and typically it was the largest building in town. These opera houses would be filled to standing room only capacity, and both amateur and professional companies would perform. This popularity was at its most intense during the latter part of the Victorian era. The opera house faded as movies swept the country as a new form of entertainment. Some of these original structures still stand, and one of those is situated on the southeast corner of the square in Granbury, Texas. Henry Kerr was a former city official, and he decided to build the structure that houses the opera house. This was a two-story structure, and the way it was built, on the ground level, they had a saloon and a saddle shop, and then the theater was up on the second floor. The doors opened for the first time in 1886, although acts weren't officially booked until 1891, so we're not sure if they did a lot of local theater there, had some local acts, and it just wasn't a big production until 1891, but that's when everything became official. It was originally called Kerr's Opera House after the owner, Lighting was provided by gas lights, and it revealed a stunning interior of red velvet. Men were asked to remove their spurs before entering. Only in Texas. Only in Texas <laughs> would you be asked to, could you take your spurs off at the door? A newspaper reported on January 14, 1892, that Kerr had enlarged the stage from the one built earlier in 1886 and added painted scenery and four drop curtains. Dances were held on the second floor as well, so it seems like it was a community gathering area as well. Entertainment came through a variety of means, including acrobats, minstrel shows, magicians, vaudeville acts, sword swallowing, and, of course, plays. So it technically sounds like this was right up Diane's alley. Absolutely. You got vaudeville and sword swallowing on the same stage. Perfect. Keeping in mind that this opera house opened in the Victorian era, it is not surprising that the community was torn between enjoying risque acts and crying out against vulgarity heard in some of the plays. That's one of the interesting things about the Victorian era, even though it seemed like it was very upper crust and staunch in the way they dressed and acted. Behind closed doors, there was a lot of risque stuff that started to develop during that time. 
They like to push the envelope a lot. And the theater was no different. Young people were kept from even walking in front of the building, and rumors floated about the reputations of the performers who enjoyed the proximity of many saloons in town. One of the more controversial shows was provided by Billy Kersan's troupe. This was a troupe of black minstrels, and Billy Kersan's was one of the most famous black minstrels of that day. Legend claims that Billy could put a whole billiard ball into his mouth and go on to deliver an eloquent monologue without any trouble. Occasionally, he shoved a saucer into his reputedly large mouth. He was an unconventional dancer and created jazz tunes. He had earlier toured Europe with another troupe before forming his own. The Granbury paper reported that the troupe played to a full house at Kerr's Hall on a Monday night and that it was the best show of its kind on the road, but that many of the townspeople kicked against paying a dollar to see it. So here you see some of the racism that was coming to the top here. They didn't want to pay money to go see a black minstrel show, but they enjoyed the heck out of it. We do have a picture of Billy Kersans in the show notes that you'll be able to find with the description of the show. He's got a big smile. I wouldn't necessarily think that he could get a whole billiard ball in that mouth, but apparently legend says so. So that's just amazing to me. I can't imagine anybody getting a billiard ball in their mouth and then to be able to speak. Yes, that's what I was about to say. I could see him maybe getting the ball in there, but not being able to eloquently speak with it in there. There is a handwritten diary on display in the lobby of the Granbury Opera House that was written by a traveling actor named Armandale. One of the interesting entries says, We played Granbury on the 25th and 27th. We came back on the 26th and played a second night at Granbury, but we had a very small house. We had a little disturbance here on the first night between the marshal and one of the citizens, but it did not come to much. We put up at the Far Hotel, and I wish it had been a little farther as it was a very poor place to stop at. So I don't know what was wrong with the Far Hotel, but he definitely didn't like the accommodations. But I thought it was interesting that there was a little dust up between the marshal and somebody at the theater. And he was like, eh, it didn't come to much. But now, of course, keep in mind, this is right above the saloon. This has got to be really interesting for these actors and even the audience. They come in. This place has got all this red velvet. They don't want you coming in with your spurs on. But da- right downstairs, they've got a saloon, which I'm thinking could get a little out of hand. We've heard about other saloons where there were bullet holes in the ceiling and stuff to these. So interesting place to put on some theater. Yes, it, it actually, as we were talking about the description, it, it reminded me of Muddy's in Denver. But instead of having a, a saloon at the bottom, it had a coffee house in the bottom. And then shows took place upstairs where we performed a few times. That is true. So little bit better maybe a calmer setting to have a coffee house down below than to have a saloon and you could wear your spurs i think i don't know (laughs) do you imagine some of these guys wandering up there that's probably where this dust up might have happened exactly so i just the setup it was interesting to me because i always think oh that's so weird that they had the dance floor or this on the second floor but then if i think back we actually had a setup like i said where we performed where we were on the second floor upstairs from everything else so i guess it was just a carryover from the old days where they put the theater on the second floor well if you think about it there were saloons that did have a stage right there where they would have the show girls and the can can mm-hmm. dancers and such but if you wanted to have serious theater productions it would be pretty hard to do that inside of a saloon <laughs> could you imagine <laughs> what they would want to put it upstairs and even to dance you really can't dance in a saloon so that would give you a nice little you know the ballroom or dance floor that would be upstairs and it seems like a lot of places that we have covered that are historic buildings had the ballroom up on the second floor even hotels Carrie A. Nation was a temperance warrior who carried around a hatchet okay you got a woman who is against drinking with a hatchet this is not going to turn out good <laughs> 
I actually kind of like where this is going. <laughs> she used that hatchet to chop up saloons. And it said that she chopped up seven of the saloons in Granbury Square. <laughs> I can just see they're like, oh, God, here comes that nation lady. and She's got a hatchet. <laughs> Crazy Carrie. That's what I would have called her. <laughs> Maybe that's what Carrie was supposed to be about. Reportedly, the loss of the saloons led to the downfall of the theater in town. Which, of course, Denise makes us wonder, how good was the acting if liquor needed to be involved in this in order for people to go to the theater? (laughs) Good point. (laughs) If we haven't had a drink, we are not going to the theater. The final curtain fell in 1911. A grocery store moved into the space and was run by a former school teacher named J.B. Wilson. Other businesses would come and go, including the first bowling alley in town. So it went from a saloon to a bowling alley. Interesting. Of course, nowadays you can get a drink at most bowling alleys, so they kind of go hand in hand. This is true. Splitsville has it all, full bar. That's true. Another grocery store moved into the west side of the building in 1940. There was an insurance company and an abstract company run by Margaret Carmichael. At this point, the building had fallen into such disrepair that she covered her desk in plastic every night before leaving, just in case it rained. (laughs) Maybe we should fix the roof. I don't know. I'm starting to wonder if the Granberry Opera House is a haunted history or more of a comedic history. It's just making me giggle. Carmichael eventually was forced to borrow money from a family member named Carl Weiser. The property was deeded to Weiser on January 14, 1965, and seven years later, he deeded it to retired businessman Joe L. Nutt. Nutt's ancestors helped establish Granberry as the county seat. Nutt deeded the building to the Granberry Opera Association on August 28, 1974. The Opera House recently underwent a $3.5 million renovation that has made it a state-of-the-art performance hall. That renovation took the theater back to the Victorian era in decor. The original limestone walls house elegant, twin-curved staircases, imported chandeliers hanging from pressed tin-inspired acoustic ceiling tiles, filigree iron balcony rails, and plush seats. I love, and I don't know if I've talked about it on the podcast before, pressed tin ceiling tiles. They're, they are beautiful. It's just neat because most of the time when we look up on ceilings, you've either got a flat ceiling or a popcorn ceiling. But these tin ones, they had those neat designs that were pressed into them. So I just love them. In Puerto Rico, we call ourselves Boricua. We are proud, passionate, and full of life. On our island, adventure finds you. Strangers aren't strangers for long. The size of the audience doesn't change the beauty of the music. And we celebrate every last ray of sun. Live Boricua. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Now, the city of Granbury has a bunch of legends connected to it, and we're going to talk about a couple of them, one of which literally is connected to the theater. The first one, though, is about Jesse James. Apparently, he is buried here. The headstone that marks his grave used to have the name J. Frank Dalton on it, but now features a Confederate flag and reads, 
CSA, Jesse Woodson James, September 5th, 1847 to August 15th, 1951, supposedly killed in 1882. So for those of you who are fans of Jesse James and the history there, you probably went, wait a minute, how does it have an end date there of 1951? Historians claim that Jesse James was shot and killed by a member of his own gang in 1882. But legend claims that the man that was shot and buried was another member of his gang, and it wasn't actually Jesse James in that grave. Then it is said that Jesse moved to Granbury, where he met a young lady and fell in love. Now, he left after that time and went to other places, but when he became an old man, he loved Granbury so much, and it is a quaint, cute city, that he decided he wanted to return there to live out the rest of his days. And I think it was a grandson that moved out there with him as well. And supposedly he died there of natural causes at the age of 103, Denise. Wow, so he got on the Smucker's jar. <laughs> yeah, in 1951. James' family descendants dedicated the headstone that's now found at the Granbury Cemetery. Now, I don't know if they've done any kind of DNA testing to verify that he's in that grave, but this is a very interesting legend here. And when I was on with Most Notorious and we were covering a lot of these guys that were back from that time, whether it was Billy the Kid or Jesse James, a lot of times this would come up where it was like, was the person actually killed when they said they were killed and in the location? Or did they go on to live? Fake a death? Fake a body? Back then, they didn't have DNA. Well, and it would seem back in that time, you know, you just shoot up their face really good and you're set. Exactly. And it was the same thing with gangsters. They're never sure if they get the actual gangster or not. It's for you to decide. Was Jesse James actually buried there? Hmm. There's a bit of conspiracy theory and legend surrounding John Wilkes Booth, the city of Granbury, and the Granbury Opera House. Many of you listeners are probably aware that there are some that claim that the 16th New York Cavalry that was chasing down John Wilkes Booth after he assassinated President Lincoln did not, in fact, get their man. They had tracked him down to the Garrett Farm in Virginia and ordered him to come out of the barn. When he did not, they set the barn on fire. He limped to the entrance and was shot and paralyzed and carried to the porch of the farmhouse. He succumbed to his injuries the following morning. His body was carried up the Potomac and buried, although some accounts have the Calvary tossing the body into the Potomac River. Other accounts claim his body was turned over to his family. And a little rabbit hole that I went down while looking into this was that Sergeant Boston Corbett, who shot Booth, was apparently a mentally unstable man. He castrated himself in the 1850s to help him, quote unquote, resist sin. So there you go. There's a cure. You don't need to go go to a confession or whatever. (laughs) Just castrate yourself. You're fine. He later served as sergeant of arms to the Kansas legislature and fired off two pistols during a legislative session. So he was later confined to a mental institution after that. He later escaped and supposedly vanished. So I thought that was a fun little rabbit hole I went down. So Diane has a kind of odd sense of fun. Well, I just thought (laughs) I want to look into this Boston Corbett character who's, you know, been put down into history as getting the man. He got John Wilkes Booth and then you find out he was a little on the nuts side. So I don't know why he was leading this posse. But Denise, after listening to what you just said there, what if Booth actually escaped or perhaps if those federal agents had actually let him go? Then we would have a whole different story playing out. And that's what we have here in Granbury. There is a legend that he changed his name to John St. Helen and that he ended up in Granbury. He tended bar there in the late 1870s and was described as scholarly and a man who had a penchant for quoting Shakespeare. So keep in mind that John Wilkes Booth was an, an actor. actor. 
Some say he performed at the Granbury Opera House. Even though he was a bartender, St. Helen never drank except on one day of the year, and that was April 14th. And of course, most of you history buffs know that that is the day that President Lincoln was assassinated. On that day, he would drink himself into oblivion. Later, St. Helen took ill, and people thought he was on his deathbed. He did too, and he took that opportunity to confess to a priest that he was Booth and that he had shot President Lincoln. He told the priest that he could find the murder weapon wrapped in newspaper and hidden behind a certain board in a house where he had lived. He recovered, however, didn't die, changed his name again, and fled to Enid, Oklahoma. You could imagine when he recovered, he was like, oh, oh no, <laughs> I'm out of here. I better move now. Oops. <laughs> Guess I shouldn't let that slip. You, you must time your confessions appropriately. Yeah, I'm feeling so much better. <laughs> Drat. Well, I'm not g- dead yet. <laughs> He again confessed to shooting the president before he committed suicide in 1913. In an odd twist, a Memphis lawyer and promoter named Finnis Bates mummified the body and took it on a tour around the country. He did end up in Granbury one day and the residents declared that the body was not that of St. Helen. The house that St. Helen had lived in at Granbury was raised in 1938 and the gun was found where St. Helen said it would be. And it was wrapped in a yellowing newspaper that had a headline about Lincoln's assassination. Oh, wow. Yeah, very interesting. Logan Hawks wrote on the Texas Less Traveled website, Years ago, before ever hearing about John St. Helens and the Granbury Connection, when I was a young reporter working for the San Antonio Light newspaper out of the Hill Country Bureau, I stumbled across a local newspaper clipping from the late 1800s that told the story of a young man who very much met the description of Booth and St. Helens, who had come to Bandera under suspicious circumstances. He was a school teacher and thespian and opened a school of acting for the children of elite families in Bandera. It wasn't long before this educated foreigner who walked with a limp and talked with a southern accent worked his way into the mainstream of local society and fell in love with the daughter of a local cattle baron. So that just gives you a little bit of background there reading in this newspaper about somebody who has this limp southern accent because again, remember back then they didn't have TV and internet where you would see these want and a wanted poster was just drawn. So maybe a lot of people didn't recognize him. He might have altered his look as well. Because of this connection to Granberry, many claim that Booth haunts the Opera House. And this is the only haunting that we were able to find in the Opera House, which is kind of unusual because it seems like when we talk about theaters, they have multiple spirits running around. This one only seems to have the one. Those that have witnessed the apparition and he'll show up as a full-bodied apparition. Claim that he's wearing large black boots and has a waistcoat that matches those boots, and that he quotes Shakespeare on occasion. And sometimes he's also seen without the waistcoat, and he's wearing a white puffy shirt, something that would probably be similar to Shakespearean kind of clothing. People claim that he looks very much like pictures of Booth that they have seen. Discovery Channel used to have a show called Ghost Lab, which some of you may have seen, and one of the places they investigated was the Granberry Theater, They picked up some strange anomalies, and some of those were EVPs, identifying itself as Booth. They also got a figure, and one of the guys went kind of crazy about it and said, you know, that looks very similar to John Wilkes Booth. Now, of course, when it's just a dark figure and it happens to look like the outline of somebody, you don't know that that's who that is. This could have been any other actor there in the theater that may have come back or somebody else had passed away. Who knows? Very interesting story. Well, and especially you can't believe everything you read on the internet, but you can believe everything a ghost tells you, right? Exactly. Ghosts always tell the truth. The city has many legends. Is the story of John Wilkes Booth surviving true? Does his ghost hang around the opera house? Is the Granbury Opera House haunted? 
That is for you to decide. And there are a lot of legends and ghost stories in connection to Granbury. There's actually a book called Haunted Granbury. And the woman who wrote that also created Granbury Ghosts and Legends Tour. So you can go on that when you are in town. On our next episode, we are going to feature Portland Cement Works. This was a location that was suggested to us by Atticus Wolfgram. And the interesting thing is when I started to look into it, I noticed that Portland cement is a type of cement that was made. And this Portland cement works is not in Portland. It's in Salt Lake City. But when I went to look up the haunted history there, I found another one in Australia that made Portland cement. So we're going to talk about a couple of haunted cement works. And we've never covered this kind of location. So it should be interesting to see what we find there. And now we have the sixth installment in the third series of Tim Prassel's Spectral Edition. This is three antebellum ghost reports. Welcome to Spectral Edition. I'm Tim Prossel. When I first started this project of collecting old ghost reports, the Spectral Edition project, I gave myself time limits. The opening date was 1865, the end of the Civil War, and the closing date was 1918, the end of World War I. I've found a lot of material in between those dates, but that doesn't mean that there weren't ghost reports before and after. What I want to look at today are three short articles from before the Civil War, the antebellum ghost reports. The first one comes from the Daily Madisonian, a newspaper from Washington, D.C., and it was printed on January 22nd of 1844. A Haunted House It has been so long since a real case of a house being haunted has occurred that many deemed the fashion had become entirely extinct. It seems that there is a lingering annoyance of this kind still to be found. A house in New York, inhabited by three respectable families, has yet room enough for some invisible spirit with a rowdy disposition to cut his pranks in. The True Son says, Since last Thursday, three families have been annoyed by furious knockings at the windows, inner doors, and other parts of the house, sometimes accompanied by groans. The furniture and closets and the crockery and cupboards, which were under lock and key, have been displaced in a most unaccountable manner. The door is opened on hearing a summons, as if a sledgehammer had been driven with tremendous force against it. No cause for the noise can be found, nor can any marks of the blows be seen upon the floor. We learn that the owner of the house kept watch last night with several persons, but could make no discoveries, although the disturbance, which invariably commences at 4 p.m. and ends precisely at midnight, was continued as loudly as ever. We presume the conjurer will soon be discovered. This next article is another short one, but it has a really fascinating story, and I might do further research into this case. It was published in the Vermont Watchman and State Journal on March 12th of 1846. Singular Affair A man who had just come to Dixborough, Michigan, with a view of taking up his residence there, has made a statement to the magistrate of that place that his house has been haunted by a female apparition, who said she had once lived in that house and had been murdered for her money, etc., etc. The earnest manner of the deponent induced an examination of the corpse of the person indicated as having formerly dwelt in the house, and the coroner's jury after a careful scrutiny, returned a verdict of death by poisoning. 
Were it not for this circumstance, the statement of Van Wart might have been attributed to the wanderings of a diseased brain. I've got one more of these. It's from the Dayton Daily Empire from Dayton, Ohio. It was published on January 29th of 1863. Mysterious. One night, not long since, an intelligent and benevolent lady called to see a sick neighbor in the vicinity of the corner of Jefferson and Chestnut Street. While near the corner indicated, when on her way home, a spectral something suddenly appeared before her. It had the seeming of a woman dressed in black, and it made gestures of the most violent description. It remained but an instant, and then disappeared with a sort of explosive noise. Our informant is a lady of nearly fifty years of age, and is by no means nervous. She feels positive that the specter, whatever it might have been, was not an optical illusion. She doesn't think it was the Chestnut Street ghost, but a spook of the satanic persuasion. So there you go. Um, In terms of the stories being told, I don't really see a big difference between the antebellum ghost reports and those published after the Civil War. It's really a matter of numbers. I can find an awful lot of these ghost articles between 1865 and 1918. I don't find that many prior to the Civil War. And trying to explain that, I think, would take much more time than I have available. You've been listening to Spectral Edition, the audio version. I'm Tim Prossel. I have close to 300 of these ghost reports, and I publish one each Wednesday on my website, The Merry Ghost Hunter. You can also find their previously released audio versions of Spectral Edition. Once again, the website is titled The Merry Ghost Hunter, and I hope you stop by. Thanks so much for that, Tim. We want to encourage you guys to check out our website, historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, where can you do that, Denise? You can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. We did receive an email from Andrew. I was catching up on a few episodes I was behind the other day while cutting the grass. I had one of those moments where I was stopped cold by the episode about the gin. When the guy talked about walking out of his house during the party and seeing the glowing orbs raining from the roof line... I immediately had cold chills. For as long as I can remember, glowing orbs showering down or surrounding me have been part of my most vivid dreams. Usually these dreams have occurred around very emotional times in my life. Most of the time it was comforting. Sometimes they were terrifying. These were only ever in my dreams. As a kid, I would put Christmas lights on the ceiling of my bedroom to try to recreate the effect. Just based on what was said in this episode, maybe it would have made sense that the orbs becoming gin would be attracted to my dreams during very emotional times in my life. I also had a reoccurring dream as a child that would happen once a year every year until I graduated from high school. In the dream, an evil witch would chase me through a maze. In my dream, I knew if she caught me that something would end. Every dream, she would get closer and closer. Glowing orbs would guide me and try to stop her. There were also these sprite or fairy creatures that would jump up and trip the witch. If I reached the end of the maze, all would be well. The last time, one of the spirits were destroyed before it could slow the witch and she caught me. I immediately woke up startled and never had the dream again. Very interesting. I'm telling you, when we look at orbs, ever since we did that Jen episode, I'm looking at things a lot differently now when it comes to orbs. 
Yes, because I mean, I still think a lot of them are dust, but when you have things that where it's like raining down, dust doesn't really rain down, it kind of floats around. And the thing that I had emailed back to him was that I had thought it was the most unique thing I had heard when Miranda told us that story and to hear somebody else say, wow, that hit home because I was, I had seen that same kind of visual. That's really weird. We also got an email from Rick, and this is about our moment notity with unsinkable Sam the cat. He is a World War II history buff, so he got us on a couple of things that he wanted us to correct. One of those is we identified the Ark Royal as a battleship, and it actually is an aircraft carrier. And the way that we had worded it, we made it sound like the Bismarck was sunk by the Prince of Wales ship, but it was not. They both badly damaged each other, but the Bismarck did sink the Prince of Wales and its consort battleship, HMS Hood. Bismarck was sunk some days later by two British battleships, Rodney and King George V. So we just wanted to correct those. And then we also heard from Teresa in the Spectacular Crew. Hey, just wanted to thank Diane and Denise for the Ledge Lighthouse podcast. My mom grew up in West Wilmington, Connecticut, so we got to see the lighthouse on many a summer trip. We're jealous from that. Well, we saw it from a distance anyways, when we went to visit our aunts, uncles, and cousins. In the year 63-64, my dad got stationed at the Coast Guard station in Groton, during which time he met my mom and later proposed to her after they had only known each other for six months. As for the pronunciation of Groton, it is pronounced just like Groton, as in a Groton potatoes. And what a sweet story. Yes, very sweet. We got an email from Betsy. She is currently reading Ghostland, an American History and Haunted Places by Colin Dickey. And she said she just wanted to recommend it to us and said that she's a few chapters in and that it's very good. One of the things that she didn't like about it as much is she said, I'm hoping it will depart a little bit from the analysis of what ghosts and hauntings mean to us as humans and Americans and focus more on the stories and places. The analysis is fascinating with some points I'd not considered before, but it's the stories we come for, don't you think? And I agree. We like to do a little bit of analysis here and wonder about things, but it's really the stories because, frankly, let's admit it, we're never going to have an answer if we're just looking at the hows and whys. Nope. And then finally, we got a comment from Candace on the Spooktacular crew. She had an interesting experience. She was pushing her stepson on a tree swing. Nearby, there was a car's toy car for a toddler. It's kind of old and it's been sitting outside for quite a while. There was no one near it and it started to make sounds. We went over to it and the button to make the noise is hard to push. To add to this, I lost my grandfather on the 4th of this month and we always spent Thanksgiving with him and this occurred on Thanksgiving. So I'm wondering if it was grandpa just coming back to say hi. That's what I would think. Or it could be a faulty toy. You know how we are here. It's for you guys to decide. We do have a couple of reviews to share with you. The first one is from G.G. Black, 1959. Hauntingly interesting. Five stars. This is an interesting podcast that blends history and hauntings. Diane and Denise are wonderful hosts that work well together and make the listener feel like we are all friends. Well, thanks so much for that. And Lil B and X 06. Love. Five stars. The mixture between history and hauntings is great. I learn new things each and every time. The hosts are pure awesomeness and really make the listener feel engaged in the podcast. I love the little family they have on Facebook through the Spooktacular crew, which I'm part of. I've been listening to this podcast for over a year, and I feel bad I've barely found time to review it. I really want everyone to know just how great this podcast is. I love how they involve listeners to help do research and bring in special guests to talk with them. I never was the kind to listen to podcasts until I literally one day decided to try it and searched Ghosts, and it was one of the top podcasts that came up. It's one of two podcasts I listen to now. 
but his Street Ghost Bump is definitely my favorite. What makes it even better is Diana and Denise are both Disney addicts like me. I live in Austin, Texas, but I hope to one day meet them on one of their trips. Well, we hope we can meet up with you as well. I want to thank you guys for joining us for this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producer, Jennifer Svoboda. And I hope I said that right. Thanks. Fan of the show? Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast catcher. We would greatly appreciate your review at iTunes as well to help the show grow. Thank you.